Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is proudly sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go to Gamesurplus.com for the latest and greatest in all things board gaming. Uh, Velma and her family are going to get you unbelievable prices, great customer service, and a selection that simply cannot be beat. That's Gamesurplus.com. For example, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, Velma has gotten in the Golden Ages, a hot new civilization board game, as well as the expansion for Carson City, Golden Guns, Massilia, and a whole bunch more. Next week, we got Sheriff of Nottingham coming in, Cold Express, uh, the expansion for Rouge, a city on his win, Dead of Winter, even more coming in all the time to GameSurplus.com. So if you're looking for a fantastic selection, great prices, and an ever-expanding inventory, and fantastic customer service, go to GameSurplus.com. I also want to take a moment to say a thank you to everybody out there who voted for the Longview for Podcast of the Year. Uh, quite frankly, I was surprised to even be nominated. Um, there are so many fantastic podcasts out there. And uh, to, to even be listed uh, as a finalist in the top 15 is something that uh, I was tremendously proud of and very pleased. And so thank you to everybody out there who voted uh, for the podcast to get me in there uh, and to show their appreciation for the show. I, I deeply appreciate that and I'm thankful. I also hope everybody goes out there and votes, whether it's for this podcast or not. Uh, this is the first year this has been a Golden Geek uh, Award. I think it's fantastic. So get out there and vote for your favorite show. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I'm very pleased to be joined once again by Damian Perry, uh, Gator Tuba on uh, Board Game Geek, as uh, he is known uh, with his username, and clearly showing his uh, devotion to uh, the Florida Gators and the music program uh, to which he was a part of so long ago that he shared with us last time. So uh, really looking forward to talking with you again, Damian, and thanks for being on the show. Uh, Jeff, thanks a lot for having me on again. I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, come and talk tonight about the game of Axis and Allies. Um, uh, when you reached out to me a little while ago, and, and uh, you know, it was before the whole convention season madness uh, had kind of descended mm-hmm. on everything, we had talked about maybe doing a show about uh, either Axis and Allies or Memoir 44 or, you know, th- these kind of war games that kind of uh, really got a lot of people started on a love and and kind of an affection for this type of game. And after talking with you in email, back and forth, bouncing back and forth, we kind of settled on Axis and Allies because, of course, Memoir 44, you know, it's such a rich system, uh, such a lot going on there that we could easily do an entire show about that, and maybe we will. Uh, But Axis Mm -hmm. and Allies was a game that, you know, you kind of told me you traced back to being one of the first games, uh, if I recall correctly, that kind of got you into the hobby in in some ways. Uh, Was this a game that you played when you were younger? Uh, yeah, uh, my first introduction to the game was uh, back when I was in college, uh, 1989, and before that I had tried, uh, I was an only child, and I had tried different games with relatives and stuff like that that weren't uh, successful. I tried uh, Rise and Decline to the Third Right. I don't know if you've ever seen that game. That's pretty intense. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. then when I was in <laughs> um, And then when I was at college, uh, went over to Buddy's house, and he had this game out. And I thought a whole new world opened up to me. That was one of my first uh, real, you know, games that I thought, okay, there's a whole other world out there I, kn- I knew nothing about. So, yeah, that's how I get introduced to it. And you will know, we'll talk later about what I did later on. But, you know, I liked it then, still like it today. 
Uh, so I uh, thought we'd talk about it a little bit because when I listen to a lot of podcasts or even uh, talk to old gamers, uh, a lot of people started uh, with Axis and Allies. And it's one of the few games that's besides Monopoly or Risk that's been around for a while now. And you can get, you know, uh, not a great edition, but you can get an edition like at Walmart or Target today. And uh, so I thought, you know, it'd be an interesting topic to just talk about. Absolutely, you know, because this is one of those games that is is sort of a progenitor of an entire sort of genre of of games, and I know that a lot of those Avalon Hill titles, like uh, like um, Downfall of the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, I think it was that you mentioned, and uh, there's so many of those old classic Avalon Hill games that were, of course, before Axis and Allies. That one came out in 1981. However. Right. Uh, this was really a mass market game, like you said. This was a game that you could get like anywhere. I, I remember being able to go into, you know, a, a Toys R Us store and be able to see right. Axis and Allies. And so this is really a game that that had that sort of you know wonderful kind of market penetration. It kind of got out there to the masses, and it really did influence, I think, a lot of people. So really quickly, I just want to go over some of the the kind of vital statistics. So we have a designer of Larry Harris Jr. listed on Board Game Geek. Um, with a artist of uh, Jim Butcher, uh, the second looks like, and this is a game that has been published many, many times. But I think the edition that most people are familiar with is the Milton Bradley edition. I mean, this is one of the original kind of big box um, games that Milton Bradley had put out at that time during this kind of era. They put out games like Samurai, uh, and they put out Axis and Allies, and they put out, oh, uh, geez, what was that, Fortress America? Was that the other big one For they put out? Yeah, Fortress, yeah. yeah, Fortress America, yeah. Right, Fortress America. I mean, these were big box games that were, um, you know, really kind of uh, a big deal at the time. And there are still a lot of people who enjoy playing these games. Um, it, it plays uh, from two to five players and takes about three hours. So, you know, honestly, uh, you know, this was a game that I, I completely missed. I completely missed <laughs> this game because I was a little bit before, I guess, that. Um, not much, but a little bit before. And when I got older, I was playing Risk. You know, before I got introduced to modern board games, right? My friends and I would get together and we play Risk. And sometimes, you know, we'd play Risk for you know, geez, four, you know, three, four, <laughs> five hours. Some games of Risk could get quite long. Um, and that was kind of our game. And I never really even tried Axis and Allies, which I kind of regret. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more from you about this game and why you think it's a title that has had such wonderful staying power. Is it just because of its availability or is there more to it than that? So uh, I'd like to kind of, you know, start off with, uh, you know, you shared your basic introduction about how this is a game you started playing in college. You kind of upgraded from Risk, and I think we could agree that it's an upgrade in complexity, certainly from Risk, and you played it quite a bit. So since I actually have missed this one, would you mind spending a little bit of time, Damien, maybe just talking a little bit about what are the basic mechanics of the game? How does the game play? Sure. Um, you know, I think it's pretty obvious what the goal is, but if you could kind of lead us off with that, that would be great. Okay, yeah, real simply, um, Axis and Allies is a historically based uh, you know, strategy game uh, where you're one of the five powers during World War II. Um, now, in some different iterations of the game or different uh, revisions of the game, you can be more than that. But long story short is you're either obviously America, UK, uh, you're either uh, Japan, 
uh, Germany or the Soviet Union. And you can play a two-player where one side's obviously the allies and one side's the axis, or you can start adding uh, all the way up to five players. And uh, the basic concept of the game is that you start off with armies, and uh, simply put, it's an area control game where you're trying to capture the other guy's capital. Uh, you're using infantry and tanks, and I don't know if you've ever seen the game, but people listening... You know, you got some really cool minis, and especially for that time when if you go from risk to Axis and Allies, it's a whole different world out there because you got little soldiers and little tanks, you got battleships and aircraft carriers and fighters and bombers and anti-aircraft guns. Um, so you you pick out your units, you're going to buy that turn, and then you, uh, you sit there and you put your orders out. Uh, you have a combat phase where you try and control an area by taking over another area, obviously. And you have a battle board, and one of the best parts about it is, you know, you got your five tank, tanks attacking the five infantry, and you, the, the infantry defend at a higher rate than they attack with. For example, they defend at a two or lower when you roll that die, and the infantry uh, can attack, but they only attack at a one. So again, you, you have the combat, and one of the nice things about the game that's I think uh, makes anybody smile is you throw those chunk of dice in that box and let it let let, right, <laughs> let right. it go where they're going to go. Uh, by the way, before I forget, my son wanted me to make sure I told you that he has horrendous luck with dice. Uh, we yes. played this game several times, and <laughs> um, tell him tell so him anyway, I feel so you, his pain. Go ahead. <laughs> I said, tell him I feel his pain. Exactly. You got it. I will. But so again, you're you're either let's say you're Germany and you're trying to invade the Soviet Union and obviously capture capture uh, Moscow, and uh, if not, maybe you can do Operation Sea Lion where you try and invade uh, the UK. Uh, but meanwhile, while you're attacking the Soviet Union, the United States is slowly building up their forces, and over turn after turn after turn, they're getting stronger and stronger. So you have a basically a time limit where Germany and, and Japan have to either, you know, take over the Soviet Union and Japan tries to keep the uh, United States at bay in the, in the Pacific Rim area. So again, it builds on itself. You have the combat, you, you know, you re resolve the combat, then you place your new units uh, and whatever area you've taken over that turn, you gain the, it's called IPC or basically the, the monetary system in the game. So obviously the more you have, then you've taken away from your opponent. So you use that money for your next turn to buy the, the new tanks and infantry and battleships, etc. So it's just a nice, uh, pretty straightforward game. I think for the time it may have been fairly complicated rulebook, but I think nowadays it's it's considered pretty light fare uh, compared to a lot of games out there now. Um, I think its longevity has to do with, um, again, it's just basic fun you've got min you know miniatures you're tossing dice uh, you know and again that can be frustrating uh, but again it's it's been a good solid game I think for years uh, and we'll talk about the different variations of the game but ultimately I think that's the basic thing where you're trying to you're the good guys or the bad guys and you're trying to take over each other well, thanks for that general overview because, you know, like I said, that was something I haven't really had a chance to play yet, although I do have a copy in my collection sitting down in the basement. And it's I required. Meaning, I know. <laughs> and, and it's one of the Milton Bradley big box, you know, kind of sets. And, you know, you're, you're certainly right. There's that big bling factor um, of the tons and tons of minis. Uh, that came with the game, and that really is something that was kind of a new world. You know, when when I played Risk, it had just you know little little cubes, you know, and, and
and that was kind right. of it. And then I was really excited when I got the upgraded version of Risk, which had like the plastic Roman numerals. I don't know if you remember those. <laughs> sure. The ones and the fives and the tens, you know. And I was like, ooh, look at this. This is fancy, you know. <laughs> and, um, we, you know, when you take a look at Axis and Allies, I mean, that's certainly something that would have gotten people's attention. Um, right. I, I also, you know, think it's very interesting that you talk about how, you know, the different units that you have behave in different ways. Right. Um, because that's something that, you know, really, of course, is not present in games like Risk. And I, I'm, you know, I don't want to try and bring up Risk. I mean, we're not really directly comparing these two for people who are listening. Don't get me wrong. But I, I think that because they're of a similar era, I think it's right. interesting to kind of take a look at those two games, um, you know, and, and see, all right, w- what is kind of the, the differences between them? Because these were two mass market games. And, you know, I know that I misspoke a little bit, you know, just a second there. I mean, Risk has been around longer, right. certainly, than Axis and Allies. But I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that these are kind of the two. If you were to ask, you know, a regular, just average person, you know, if they've heard of games like the games we play, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to answer the way you just said. You know, they're going to talk about Monopoly, they're going to talk about Risk, and they might talk about Axis and Allies. So, Axis and Allies is this little step up in complexity, uh, and it offers you know a, a kind of larger decision space because you have these different units that you're talking about to bring on the board, and each of them behaves in a different way. Can you tell me, right. um, you know, when you're describing the game, you talk about how you take over regions, you're going to basically be getting more money because of that, you know, because you control more territory, and so you're going to have more money to spend on future units. How does the game avoid, or does it not avoid, the sort of rich get richer kind of a problem where you know if you're getting squeezed and your opponent keeps taking over uh, you know more and more territory you know is there a finite supply of forces that you can acquire or a finite uh, number that you can uh, field in a particular turn how does the game deal with that or does it not deal with it and is that maybe a problem um, it deals with it a couple different ways. Basically, you know, Germany, beginning of the game, Germany and, and America start out fairly strong as far as monetary uh, ability. And, but, you know, the United States didn't have many units, whereas Germany obviously starts with both money and units. Uh, and Soviet Union, comparatively, is fairly weak. And you got, you know, uh, UK and Japan kind of in the middle. So what happens is, as Germany initially and historically somewhat accurate, uh, I don't want to get in historical context of this game because we can get go off on a big tangent. But historically, you know, Germany invaded Russia, and at one point Russia was pretty close to being knocked out. But slowly over time, Russia built up, America built up, got into the war, and that's essentially what's happening in this game, where you have Germany starting off real strong, and even though they take over some territory, that territory isn't real for lack of a better word, big money makers. It's just taking over territory and taking over, taking away ground from the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union is losing money, but initially, you know, uh, neither Japan nor the, uh, Germany can really do much against America. And Japan can do a little Pearl Harbor. It, it's it's already even though it's Axis and Allies, it says it's 1942. Pearl Harbor hadn't happened yet in this in, in this uh, world of Axis and Allies. So you could do that Pearl Harbor thing where you and you know basically wipe out the the uh, the American fleet in the Pacific Ocean. But America is going to be essentially very strong. But it takes them a while to build out that unit or those units and get them over again it takes a couple turns to get those units over to the uk so then you can use those units to invade from the uk into europe so you've got a timing mechanism that kind of balances out that thing so you've got 
you, you don't have unlimited amount of time as if you're Germany or Japan to go in and do what you're trying to do you know, strategically, whether that's Operation Sea Lion or if it's you know just going straight to Moscow or if the Pacific uh, Rim, if Japan wants to invade uh, China uh, or the United States, you can do a lot of different options there. So if that basically is what I'm saying is how how how's how's it balance out the game? Well, thanks for clarifying that for me because I I was really kind of curious about that because you know some of these older games do have these I don't know that I want to necessarily call them flaws but they do have these uh, issues that you know have been sort of thought about uh, I think a lot more as time has gone on and sort of corrected or addressed but it sounds like there's you know at least something in here um, you know to balance out that that issue you know that problem of you know germany is is eventually going to get squeezed you know japan is going to get squeezed they're going to be losing territory but it sounds as if you can jump out quickly and right. you know take over you know some of your objectives along the way towards your ultimate goal uh you know you might be able to apply enough pressure to win the game before everybody else can ramp up and as you said that's that has some historical accuracy to it uh you know which is nice um so Definitely appreciate that. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about and ask you is about the aspect of multiplayer versus two-player because I've been really fascinated recently with the sort of um, proliferation of multiplayer war games that have come out recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, you know, that kind of started with uh, Strike of the Eagle, which was a block war game from Academy. Really nice title. Really enjoy it. Um, and it's you know kind of history near and dear to my heart because it's talking about Poland. Um, however, uh, you know it, it has the option to play up to four players, and where you mm-hmm. kind of have one person controlling one portion of the map and kind of giving the orders for units there, and someone uh, controlling the southern portion of the map. And and so there, there's a little bit of a the opportunity for some team play. There's the opportunity to you know have someone that you can strategize with and and talk about before you plan. The the moves for the entire army, um, you know, for that particular turn. And I would say that that works to a degree. Um, I don't know that it's really a a, a wonderful multiplayer game. I think it works actually maybe even better two players. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was kind of the first. And then there were a lot more that kind of popped up, and most notably to me, other Academy Games titles, which would be 1775 Rebellion and uh, 1812, which are uh, war games that are kind of... You know, you might say that they're on the lighter side, but again, they're this area control. There's differentiation of units uh, through the use of special dice. And it is a game that is clearly designed for many, many players. I mean, you can play a two-player, but it Mm -hmm. really is at its best when you have a full complement. And that was something that was very exciting to me because in those two titles, it's often um, the case that you and your allies don't always agree or your allies may take some of the, the, the troop force that you have and haul them off somewhere else where you didn't want them to right. go. And so there's a little bit of conflict. There's a little bit of tension there, even among your allies. And, and I really enjoyed that about those two games, and I still enjoy it about that. Now, this game, Axis and Allies, you said, you know, you can play this all the way up to, you know, five players in this base kind of iteration of the game, the original, where everybody's playing a different superpower. And some of these superpowers, of course, are supposed to be naturally allied um, with each other in the game. So how does that work? I mean, what would you say about the uh, sort of 
um, team or multiplayer dynamic in this game compared to other games either from the past or games that are currently out like I was just talking about? Well, I think ultimately with this game, I, I think you've got to have, because it, it does involve a lot of luck with the dice, I think you got to go into it with a good attitude if you have teammates. <laughs> because uh, if you're the allies, you have to work uh, more together than the Axis really does. Um, you can get together as Japan and Germany and say, okay, let's put pressure on uh, Soviet Union on both fronts and use Japan, worry about China more than the United States, just kind of fight a, a defensive war in the, in the, in the Pacific. Um, with the Allies, they've got to be a little bit more coordinated. And again, I don't want to make this sound too complicated because this is not, you know, Fire in the Lake or some other hex-based games. This is a more, uh, for lack of a better word, beer and pretzels kind of game where you're just you've got to go in the attitude. You're there to have fun. Um, but I remember <laughs> one time I was the Axis, and just to tell you how these things can work, I was the Axis. I was Germany or I was uh, Japan. And my, my partner, who had never played before, decided that the best thing for Germany to buy was a battleship, because which is the most expensive thing that you can buy. And he thought that the reason why Germany lost the war was because they didn't have a good naval presence. So, you know, at that point, I knew the game was pretty much lost, but we... <laughs> But we still had a good time. <laughs> you know, you, you, you got to go with the right attitude. Um, but the but the allies should go in with a little bit more of an organized plan. They they have to work better and they have to work more together. For example, if you UK can say, look, United States, why don't you help defend Africa? I'll concentrate on you know maybe doing some bombing runs against you know uh, Berlin. Uh, maybe send in some troops to, through Scandinavia to help uh, UK, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, so I think the allies have to work together. But again, this is not um, something that you need to pour over. I've seen people with analysis paralysis, both on what you're purchasing that turn and the strategy. This is very much a strategic game, uh, not a tactical game. So if you have some broad strokes with you with your uh, compadres, uh, then you're going to be fine and just you know just have fun with it. Uh, but I don't think it's it, it's going to be too. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, you're not going to get too heated in a discussion if you you guys disagree on a certain way of doing things. That's just my opinion. And again, it's fun, and that's what you got to. That's what the attitude you got to come in there with. Right, right. Okay, so the awesome German Navy strategy did not pan out. I mean, yeah, that's a little tip for you newbies out there. Yes, the <laughs> naval strategy for Germany is not the way to go. He just can't dump enough ships into the North Sea. No. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you know, that's, that's good to know. But, yeah, all right, So, there, but there's definitely is some player interaction there in this game, yes? Oh, yeah. Oh, very much so. Oh, very much so. Because, you know, if you're going to invade, let's say it's later in the game and you're invading Europe, you know, the UK and the United States have got to work together. And they've got to say, OK, I'm going to go ahead and, and do the first. Let's say you're UK. You're going to go before in that turn. You're going to go before uh, United States. You're going to sit there. I'm going to invade and uh, my troops may get wiped out on the beaches, but we're going to help you know, uh, lessen the fighting ability of the, the defenders of the Germany and France. So then the United States then comes in and will go ahead and then do the second wave of the invasion. And that's where, you know, you can see Germany lose the position there in France. So, yeah, you definitely have to work together. You can't go alone. Uh, and, you know, there's enough interaction there that I think is fun, but not so much that you're going to get mad at each other if something, you know, somebody does something stupid. 
Right, right. Now you describe this as a uh, a, a much lighter game. You know, you use the phrase beer and pretzels, right. but um, there is you know some complexity in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the decisions that you have to make about what it is that you're going to you know, purchase or buy and how you're going to deploy things, and then how the different units interact. I mean, you already talked about the tanks and you talked about the infantry, um, you know, and trying to sort of uh, uh, you know, make these long-distance bombing runs and strikes into enemy territory, right. which I'm assuming has an in-game effect uh, you know, on the economy of uh, the, uh, you know, the Germans, perhaps, if a successful bombing right. run is made or, or something of that nature so you know it, there, there's definitely something to chew on here but um you know you feel that the game has a lot of luck i mean i keep hearing you talk about the dice so right. is this really um akin to risk in that regard where you're just going to be at the mercy of the dice is there nothing that modifies the dice or mitigates the dice in any way or is it really you know can you theoretically have that position where there's two units that are sitting here and I've got 15 and somehow those two have wiped out all 15 of mine. I mean, did you, can you run into that kind of situation, almost like a risk situation? Um, no. I mean, can you? Sure. But it's going to be really against the odds that that's going to happen. Now, where it gets frustrating is you have three tanks, they have one infantry, and somehow that one infantry may survive. Uh, that's happened, that kind of thing. But the 15 to 2 or 15 to 3, is you're, you're going to win that. You know. And by the way, there's calculators online that you can calculate your odds uh, of, of winning any particular battle. If you go to AxisAndAllies.org, they have uh, calculators for all the different variations of the game, and you can put in, if I have 10 tanks and you have 3 infantry, what are the odds I'm going to win, and that type of thing. So you can easily you know, pretty much feel it out after you play it a couple times. Going back to your original point, though, as far as luck goes, okay, if I am an experienced player versus a not-experienced player, I'm going to win right. 9 out of 10 times. Okay. Um, where it gets dicey, no pun intended, is where you have very good players and it comes down to that one or two big battles. And yeah, obviously, and that's why you play the game, is you can have some luck involved with, you know, let's say the big push from Germany into to Russia and they're finally going to capture Moscow and they've got a certain number of tanks and the defenders got a certain number of infantry and the roles just don't go Germany's way. You know, Germany maybe have a huge setback there. But what you try and do strategically is make sure you put uh, you know the odds in your favor by you know okay I've got infantry I've got tanks the infantry there are for cannon fodder the tanks are there to you know give a blow and you also throw in a couple fighters that you know can attack the highest rate and throw in some bombers so you throw your odds more in your favor you try and make sure you build yourself up for that um, and that way you do it now keep in mind I, we're going back to something else we talked about earlier. Uh, the strategic bombing runs. Okay, just so you know, right now, the game you're going to get at, at Target or uh, Walmart is is a spring 1941 version. Uh, the one you're talking about was one of the first iterations back in 1986. Actually, it came out, I think, in 1981 by somebody else, but 1986 is the one everybody knows with Milton Bradley. Um, they don't have bombers in the 1941 spring version that you can get at Walmart. They have bombers, but they don't do strategic bombing runs. Excuse me. So in case somebody's listening and saying, hey, I don't have strategic bombing runs, there is a little bit uh, simpler rule set with the one you get in the mass in the, in the big box stores. Um, so and you know, talk about the point. One of the nice things about strategic bombing runs in the original version is you could you know, basically 
fly over the capital with your bombers and you roll dice and that's how much money was taken away from that country. So for example, if if Germany had $36 and you rolled enough dice, you now, you know, lose 6, that gets paid to the bank. Then they changed it a little bit um with the latest version, uh, Jeff, where if you have your bombers run over the city, they instead of having lose money, now they're the the uh, factories that are where you can place your soldiers at uh, actually limit the amount of troops you can put in that city. So, for example, in southern uh, Italy, if you run a strategic bombing run over a, an industrial complex in southern Italy, and again, the industrial complex is where you can put your, your troops, uh, and there's a limit. Normally, there's a limit of, say, six. So you can put six units in that area. When you put your units out, you can only put six. But if you run a strategic bombing run and it hits twice, now they can only put four units there unless you, as the Axis, repair the uh, the city. So I don't want to get too deep in the rules, but long story short is there is some iterations out there from 86 to 1999 to 2012 that they've, they've changed the rules a little bit. So it kind of gets a little, uh, for lack of a better word, muddled. Uh, on that. So, uh, but, you know, I just want to let you know that's, that there's a lot of different ways. That's one reason I like the original version, 1986, pretty much the best, because the other thing you can do with that is you can uh, do what is known as increased technology. For example, you can have super bombers if you roll the right dice. That's where some luck comes in. Or you can have the V2 rocket or super submarines. I mean, there's there's some nice variants you can play and have fun with. Uh, but they don't have that in the, the new, the, the more recent editions. Well, you know, that's a perfect lead-in, so thank you very uh, much. Um, no problem. Talking about, uh, you know, the different editions, because uh, I wasn't aware that there was a difference between, uh, you know, the one that I have sitting in my basement and the one that you can pull off the shelves. So I do know that there have been many, many iterations of this game. There's the uh, one that you're speaking of, uh, which is 1941. And as soon as you said it, I'm like, yeah, that's right. It does say that on the box. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, others that I've seen, I think, that focus more on the Pacific um, right, and then there's even one that was just released not too long ago that's going for ridiculous prices for World War One. Right, um, there's kind of an Axis and Allies for for World War One. Right. So, uh, what can you tell us about these kind of different iterations of the game? Are these basically um, tweaks to the existing system to highlight a different kind of theater of war or battle or a different time period? Or are these totally sort right. of unique games in and of their own right? What would you say to that? Um, <laughs> that's a wide open question. You, you, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> And I put down my mic. As soon as I was done, I was like, I'm going to put down the mic because he's going to be talking for a while. Go have a pizza, right. maybe have a dessert. <laughs> <laughs> have a little sandwich, you know, something like that. Get some coffee. All right, yeah, but, you know, no, in all seriousness, I, yeah. there's a lot out yeah. there. And so is this a game system or are these kind of individual kind of games? What? Well, let's start there. Okay. Well, yes and no <laughs> to every question you just asked. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and first of all, we won't even talk about the Axis and Allies miniatures. That's a whole different genre that we won't even get into. But let's let's just go do some quick history. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I cheated and obviously looked up on Wikipedia and watched some videos. But I have a lot of these games. I'm looking right at them right now so I can speak to them, some of them, fairly well. Um, you have your basic game, again, that you're familiar with. This is the one that has the big Axis and Allies, red lettering with white outline. It has MacArthur on the box with his uh, corncob pipe. 
that's the one that, you know, quote unquote, that I first fell in love with the game kind of thing. It's a, you know, it's fun. It's rolling dice. It has the strategic bombing runs. It has the variable technologies you can roll for, et cetera. Um, then uh, they came out. Let's see here if I'm going to make this right. They came out with uh, Axis and Allies Europe and Axis and Allies Pacific. Okay. Obviously, by definition, they only focused on those you know, two areas of war. Uh, give you a couple, they kind of changed the game a little bit in the sense you still had infantry, battleships, etc. but they added some uh, new little wrinkles to the rules. They added uh, destroyers. They added um, uh, what are known as convoy zones in the Europe uh, division where basically if you're an Axis sub, you can ride through that. And now you've just taken away uh, money or ability to get money from UK. So it, it introduces a whole new strategic thing of basically repeating the war in the Atlantic, trying to take over. So that's what the the European theater does on the on that on the Axis Allies. This is the first <laughs> Axis and Allies Europe. Uh, then they had Axis Allies Pacific, obviously focused on the Asian Pacific Rim, uh, and there they introduce a new unit for the United States called the Marine Unit, which uh, has a higher cost, but it, it actually when it does an amphibious assault, it actually has a two attack as opposed to a normal one on an infantry. Also in the Pacific Rim, it introduced the Kamikaze um, for that version of the game, where you actually, if you're the Japanese player, you can have uh, six chances to utilize Kamikazes. And if you do hit, instead of the defender picking out which ship he'll lose, the Kamikaze or the Japanese side picks out which, which ship the United States would lose. Uh, then you came out, or they came out with Axis and Allies D-Day, which obviously focused on uh, the, uh, you know, the invasion of Normandy. And that's actually a really good starter game. I bought that initially with my son in mind when he was much younger to try and introduce him to the concept because it, it's fairly short. It's pretty self-explanatory, and it has a lot of turns that automatically determine for you. The order of battle is, is pretty much laid out in front of you. Um, it has bunkers. It has some neat effects. Uh, some some dice rolling uh, that is a little bit different, and we'll get into it, but again, a nice iteration. And if you've ever played Memoir 44, especially the D-Day, you know, uh, uh, the scenario there, it's it's like, uh, for lack of a better word, it's like they were trying to do Memoir 44 before Memoir 44 was even out. It, it really gives you some hints of what could happen later on with, uh, you know, in my opinion, a very good game with Memoir 44. Uh, then you had the Axis and Allies Battle of the Bulge, which is fairly highly rated. Again, focusing on one thing, uh, and that's you know the the one battle uh, there. Instead of using D6s, they use D12s, um, and they have a, an interesting mechanic to determine how uh, the units get hit. You roll the dice, and then you pull out a strip with all the different units on it, and if the numbers match, that's the unit gets hit. You can't pick and choose which units get hit in this version the dice basically pick what unit gets hit. So that's kind of a very, oh, yeah, interesting. It, it is. <laughs> so, uh, and then you have Axis and Allies, Guadalcanal, and these four Pacific D-Day, Battle of the Bulge, Guadalcanal, and uh, even Axis and Allies Europe all originally came out around the, around the same time. Um, with this one, it's again, it's a quick game, the Guadalcanal, uh, you can, it's islands. Um, you have destroyers that can carry troops. That's a little bit different in this one. Um, and every unit uh, also gets the ability to uh, defend a different way. And combat is resolved in a battle box where the different dice determine, again, when they're rolled out, you see if it's a hit or not. And that determines, you pull that out and you see who gets hit. 
so I, it's kind of hard to explain. I don't, you know, it's one of those things that I've I've not played it. I've only seen it played on online, and I've heard about it. But it's kind of a it has a battle box where you shake it up, the do, you toss the dice out, you know, both sides, and that determines which get hit. So a little bit different there. Now then they came out with a couple years later. They have, you know, originally I said Axis Allies Europe and Axis and Allies Pacific. Well, they came out with that again with different rules. And now you could combine the two games where you could actually have a global war of Axis and Allies with the two versions, Axis Allies Europe and Axis and Allies Pacific. Now, from what I've heard, I've never played it that way. I've heard that's a bear. I mean, it just takes forever. Um, and it's, it's, for the lack of a better word, it's painful because it's just a very long game. It's laborious, etc. And what that version does, it introduces, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, it introduces Italy, it introduces France to the equation because that actually is Europe 1940, and I have that game and Pacific 1940. And so you have, again, more minis, more dice that represent those countries, and it's... Um, it's a, it's, it's a neat-looking game, but I don't know if it's, for lack of a better word, it's practical. We're talking, you know, Twilight Imperium time length here on a, on an Axis and Allies game. Uh, right, right. And then they came out with the Anniversary Edition. Then they came out with uh, Spring 1942. Then they came out with uh, Spring 1941, which is, what again, what you're going to see at the big box stores. And we've kind of talked about the, the differences there. Now, unfortunately, the manufacturers have gotten a little cheap through the years. Uh, your box that you have from Milton Badley actually contains, uh, you know, uh, the IPC chart where you track the monetary value that each country has. It comes with that. It also comes with paper money, which is, you know, the typical monopoly money. But the new versions do not come with that. You have to basically, it says in the rule book, to write down on a piece of paper <laughs> to keep track of your money and who's at what. Nice, nice. So one of the things, yeah, isn't that nice of them? I thought so. And they're yeah, a little chintz. <laughs> They're a little chintzy on the amount of minis you get in this new one and the little chips uh, that you use to track uh, units. So, for example, if you have, uh, an, let's say you have five infantry, but you don't want to put five little minis on it, you have one with four little gray chips, and uh, if you have a red chip, that represents five. And they're really kind of lacking in the amount of chips in the new version also. So that's a little little thing, I guess, you know, and, and they don't have any money in it. So the first thing I do now, I've, I've, you know, I've got all these sets, so I've got thousands of minis and chips, but, you know, I always tell people print off your own money. You can get them offline off BGG. Um, it's real easy to make, uh, when I, I would say real easy to make money. <laughs> it's real easy. To, yeah, it, yeah. It's real. I wish that was true. <laughs> it's real easy to make uh, uh, access and allies money. Let's specify that um, before the yacht. Yeah, let's not get the United States Treasury <laughs> yeah. knocking at our door, okay? I don't want any Secret Service people showing up saying, now about that printing of the money. All right. But yeah, no, I, I totally get what you mean. And and personally, I would probably use poker chips. Yeah. I mean, I'm always a fan of poker yeah. chips. So, yeah. uh, but, you know, I, I, I digress. Yeah. So, all right. So the the newer editions uh, don't have quite the bells and whistles right. that it's you know we've come to kind of know and love. Right. Um, now, just out of curiosity, um, have you tried the sort of World War One version of the game? Um, I read enough about it, and I saw it actually at Dice Tower Con. Uh, gentleman and his son were playing it. Um, you know, I don't know if you know anything about World War One. There was a lot of movement. There was a lot of troop movement the first uh, couple months of the war. There's a great book, a Pulitzer Prize that I read years ago, um, Guns of August, which goes over the first you know couple months of the war. And right, right. that's what that covers is that that time frame. Um, you know, the problem is, Jeff, at this stage, I've got so many Axis and Allies games. Uh, it's like, hell, do I really want another one? <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and, you know, and I had read some negative reviews on it, so I didn't pick that up, but I did see it played. Um, and I think, I think the, uh, the gentleman and his son had a good time playing it at the convention, but it's not something I'm looking to, to get into, but I, you know, it, it has some different components. It has the style of tanks, the old style of tanks, um, you know, on the board and, you know, it talks about trenches and, and that type of thing. It brings a lot of, you know, turkey and stuff like that into the war. So, it's it's a, it looks like a nice and rare sheet, but I can't really speak to it. I've never never played it. Okay, all right. Well, you know, thanks for that uh, uh, overview of all of those kind of different sort of uh, I don't even want to call them versions. They're just kind of different looks at the same time period. You right. know, it sounds like they, you know, started off with kind of the the broad picture of the entire world. And all of the the powers and and all of the the geography involved, and then they kind of started zooming in a little bit, you know, using the the, the zoom in lens as it were to kind of focus on specific battles or specific time periods or whatnot. And you know that certainly sounds you know interesting, and sounds like something that would offer up lots of new opportunities to try some different things and tweak the rules and whatnot as you're describing, uh, you know, talking about like the Atlantic convoys and things of that nature. Right. Um, my my, my other question, though, is is related to what you just said about the um, you know the World War One version of Axis and Allies, which is I've heard many people kind of level the same criticism at this game that they do at uh, you know games like Risk, where you know the game can outstay its welcome; it can drag on too long. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that that criticism has any validity or not? Um, you know. It, <laughs> Probably yes. I mean, now the the other you know the shorter D Day and Guadalcanal, those kind of versions don't they don't drag on too long. I don't think at all. Battle of the Bulge definitely not. But uh, the the base game, the one that you have, the 1942 or the 1941. That, now the 1941 is a little bit stripped down, so it doesn't drag on as much. It's, it, it even says in the advertisement it's supposed to be shorter. Um, yeah, I think it can outstay its welcome. Um, you know, I remember. Geez, uh, probably 15 years ago, I remember driving up a couple times with a buddy of mine up in Gainesville, and I'd get there at 8, uh, start playing, and we'd be finished around 12, 30, 1 o'clock, and we knew what we were doing. But, you know, we're also eating pretzels and having a good time. So, you know, if you're, th- it depends on your attitude. If you're there to be nonstop action and every move is, you know, vital or something like that, probably not for you. But if you're there that you're going to do your movements, your combat, your troop placements, and then you may wait a little bit for your buddy to decide what he's going to do. You know, these are important decisions now. How many infantry do you have to buy if you're, a, you know, if you're Soviet Union? So, you know, these it, it does take some time, but to me, it's worth it. I mean, as long as you have the right attitude, I think it's definitely worth it. Okay, excellent. Um, and, and you know, and you've talked about this idea of attitude quite a bit. You, you know, it's come up uh, quite a few times. You know, you called it a beer and pretzels game in some ways, and having the proper attitude when you're, you know, playing the game, not taking it too seriously. Um, you know, but but it, it's it's an interesting thing because whenever you're talking about a game that kind of has that sort of time investment, I think people do naturally tend to take things seriously. Right. I know we took our games of risk very sure. seriously. And, uh, you know, there was often uh, a lot of shouting and yelling and whatnot. Um, so, you know, just, I don't know. I mean, how light would you say this game is, <sighs> it, you know, for, for a game that takes this long? Like, what would you rate it on the complexity scale? Because I don't know about you, but when I look at BGG's kind of um, complexity meter, yeah. you know, like what do people rate this game, I find that to be 
pretty massively unuseful <laughs> as far as I can tell. Like I just right. it doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Some people rate games that I think are relatively straightforward very highly or you know games that i think are brain burners very low it it just does it seems too subjective to me so i'm really only asking your opinion what would you say about the the sort of the the complexity the heaviness of this game um and does it match the time frame involved or not or you know what would you say about that okay i think it it's let's say on a scale of one to five, it's a two. It's not very complex, especially compared to, to you know today's modern games. I mean, this is not Panamax or you know Kanban or whatever the case may be. But um, to me, again, I I don't want to repeat myself, but if you had the right attitude, here let me give you a quick example. If you if you're sitting there, you're doing the the 1942 or 1941 version where you're the whole world, and you know Germany's come down and they've decided their strategy is going to be invade Russia, and it comes down to well. Uh, UK has sent a couple troops over. Maybe uh, uh, America's got a couple fighters over there in Russia to help defend. And you're making that big push, and you're about to take over Russia. And it's you know you can do the calculator all you want, but you still got to roll those dice. And if something goes wrong, you know all of a sudden all your hopes and dreams of the last six turns have gone up in smoke. You know that can get a little frustrating. You do take it seriously. Uh, but again, you know, it, for me to sit there and say it's complex, it's not, and, but it does take a long time. So I don't know, you know, everybody's into his own thing. I like the game, but you know, I like a lot of games. Maybe I'm not the guy to ask, um, you know, now would, would I rather play this than rise and decline of the third, right? Which I would consider a five out of five as far as complexity. And that's an old, you know, hex game. Yeah, I'd much rather play Axis and Allies because there you've got a lot more, you know, you know how you play some games and you're exhausted mentally after them, you know? Yes, well, yes. that's not the case with Axis and Allies. You may be frustrated, but you're not going to be, oh, man, I'm, that's a brain burner, like you said. I mean, uh, you know, I know you don't like Splendor, but I like that game. It's, it is what it is. Boo. It's not going <laughs> to... I, I knew I'd, I had to bring that up. I, you know, I, I don't have to. You know, I don't have to. Get, I don't have to second guess myself every second on that one. Um, whereas, you know, Axe and Allies, I think is you're kind of the same concept, but it's definitely not to keep comparing to Risk, but it's definitely hides in, you know big time better than uh, than Risk. I mean, as far as complexity goes and enjoyment, and again, it's got some historical flair. I'm not going to say it's historically accurate. Uh, it does have the name of the countries right, but you know, ultimately, uh, it's just fun, and that's what. <laughs> Well, I'm, I, I minored in history, so I like history. So um, I end up exactly. specializing in European history. So so you end up going, well, this can't be possible. But, you know, it's still – and again, when you have, uh, you know, American troops in China, that's fine. But when they build a factory there and you can put troops there, that gets a little iffy. But that's another discussion. But And again, if you go back to your, you know, like a, a advanced squad leader, is that complex? You know, I've played it. I, I liked it, but not enough to go, I really wanted to, you know – devote a lot of time to this this game in my opinion if you especially if you have somebody teaching the game you can learn in 20 minutes and you know maybe a little guide to tell you a little strategy and hey by the way you might want to buy infantry the first round if you're germany that way when you buy tanks a second turn you can then have the tanks catch up fairly quickly with the infantry because they can only move one and the tanks can move two so you know that type of thing you learn after playing but it's nothing Nothing that's going to keep you up at night going, all right, how do I calculate, you know, this, you know, equation or something like that? You know, it's not power grid. Let me put it that way. Right, right. Okay. So you're not trying to, to, to do all of that math. You're just kind of trying to learn the ropes of the game. Okay. Well, I appreciate that because, uh, you know, I've been kind of curious about this game and, and uh, you know, it, it, 
it's that's always been my kind of concern, you know, which is okay, if I'm going to play a war game, it's the would you rather kind of syndrome for me. You right. know, it's like okay, would I rather right. play Axis and Allies or would I rather, you know, play Sekigahara or would I rather play uh Combat Commander or you know, something like that. And, you know, oftentimes I find myself saying, no, I'd rather play um, 1775 or Combat Commander. You know, I don't don't know that I want to learn a new game. Um, But, you know, there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, the game uh, gives you that experience, but it doesn't require... It sounds as though you're telling me it doesn't require study. You know, this isn't something that you're going to have to devote yourself to. Like, you know, for example, Combat Commander Pacific, I picked that up. And mm-hmm. it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around the game. Um, but once I started playing it, I, I, I really started enjoying it. Played the same scenario a few times each time to try to start to kind of get a feel for it. And, you know, there's other war games that have kind of come out. And I'm like, ooh, you know, those look interesting. And it's like I, I found myself kind of saying, like, okay, look, what system am I going to sort of invest in? Like, what's going to be my war game? Sure. Because they're all so complex that I don't really think that I can sort of do justice to any of them as far as exploring them and deciding, you know, all of the the great kind of ideas that can come out of playing them. And so, you know, after all of this kind of searching, I kind of decided, you know what, I got to kind of stick with something. So I went with coin. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much at this point my sort of focus are the coin games. You know, I'm, I play a lot of Cuba right. Libre. I'm playing a lot of Fire in the Lake. Well, as much as anybody can play Fire in the Lake, sure, it's sure. not exactly a short little game. No. Um, but, you're, you know, you kind of make it sound appealing, though, that Axis and Allies is almost like that sort of 1775, maybe even a little more complex uh, sounding than 1775, but not something that's going to be daunting, you know? Right. Not something that you're going to have to say, well, this is the only war game that I can play because it's so complex and deep like ASL that I really have to not only play it, but study it. So would you say that's true? Right. A hundred percent accurate. I mean, you've got some war games out there that figure out the, you know, armor thickness on certain tiger tanks during battles. So if they roll whatever, you know, that's going to determine the combat results table. There's no combat results table in this game. It's simply dice. And if your guy is hits, you know, great. The other guy hits you. That's great too, or misses. Where it's very simple. You you know where you're standing. Once you put those those uh, units on the battle board, it's not anything you've got to get a you know an acubus out or a calculator or anything like that. It's all pretty straightforward. Um, but now you know going to your point, and this is a whole other discussion potentially. You know, are you the type of person that really enjoys investing a lot of time studying? Okay, you know, fire in the lake is an example. Being really detailed and going the minutia. This game is not that. Access and Allies is not that. It's not going to give you that. It's enjoyable, but not in that sense. You know, uh, some people enjoy crossword puzzles. Not my thing. You know, but again, doesn't mean right, there's anything right. wrong with crossword puzzles. So, oh uh, yes, there is. That's there's, you... there's lots of things wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just a wrong use of someone's time. Is all I have to say about that. That's funny. If you're spending that much time trying to figure out a six-letter word for ditch. <laughs> then you have a problem. That's just my take on it. You need to enter a 12-step program and see if you can seek out some help. Well, and yeah. now we can let the hate mail yeah. begin. Okay, all right. Anyway, go no, ahead. That's, that's fine. Send your letters to Jeff Gind. No. Um, uh, 
Uh, you know, I'm looking at, like my son right now. He's 13. He'll be 14 in December. And what, you know, we've played Axis and Allies. We played Memoir 44. Do I get him another game for Christmas? And it's up to him. And, you know, we're spending 60 bucks on a video game. I can spend 50, 60 bucks on a board game that doesn't need batteries and can last for 20 years. Exactly. You know, um, do I get him a game like a Battle of Five Armies? Uh, do I get him a game like the yes. the, <laughs> the coin series? Uh, Maybe. Yeah. Um, I looked at the uh, was a uh, uh, we have uh, Napoleonic. We have one of the Command and Colors thing. But do we look at that? Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, Conflict of Heroes, um, which I've read some good stuff about. You know. Sure. And again, now uh, not that you're locked in forever. If I pick one, you know, one version of the game, do we done? You know, uh, do we look at an ASL or you know? Now we have Kimmin. No. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Another for a thirteen-year-old, no, I say no. no, no. But it is, you know, it, you know, you just never know what right, to look right, for yeah, if, if you're going to. And I agree with you inside, in in the sense of if you're going to invest the time, you want to get. And to me, you can have fun with even the big box store version of Axis and Allies. I bought it at a at a thrift store for, for a client, or for not a client, for a friend of mine, for like. Nine bucks at a thrift store, a hospice uh, store. It was unopened. I got it for, you know, it's, I think he, it retails at 30. So I gave it to him. Him and his two boys, he has twin 13 year old boys. They had a great time playing it. You know, that's, it's, it's fun. It's not going to, you're not going to stay up at night going, well, if I had just done this, my new, you know, action and brought this third tank in with the extra armor and, you know, and then if the fog hadn't rolled in, I would have been fine, you know. And again, I'm, <laughs> right, I'm not right. picking on those games. I'm just saying it's not that kind of game. So, it, right. If you, you know, I think, you know, again, it's fun, but um, I think you'd easily buy a version of it, play it, go back and play it again two months later and, and not stress about it. And as far as the rules go, you know, compared to today's rule set system out there that's out there for, you know, ASL or whatever, it's very, if you can get Memoir 44, you can definitely get this game. You know, that's Excellent. not a problem at all. Okay. And it sounds like there's, you know, quite a lot of variety out there, which is nice too. Um, and, you know, there, I also don't want to, like, knock it. I mean, I, I'm not trying to necessarily paint it with a broad stroke and say that it's some sort of, you know, early mass market progenitor uh, that's kind of an iffy game. Because you've already kind of uh, described some things that really intrigue me. I mean, this whole notion of, um, you know, the, the submarine warfare and the notion of, you know, developing the V2 rockets. And right. I, you know, really intrigued. I, I'd like you to, if you can, maybe even tell me a little bit more mm -hmm. about the combat system where, you know, you, you have to take, uh, you know, hits to your units, but you don't always get to choose them. That that whole notion of you don't really know who's going to, you know, take that damage. And is that going to perhaps expose you in a way uh, that that is going to be really worrisome to you instead of always being able to kind of sort of godlike pick and choose who's going to take what hit and who's going to be removed and what's going to remain behind. I like that because it kind of gives a little bit of that feeling of the chaos of the situation and that you always, you know, you don't always know. You can't control everything. Right. And so that's one of those cases where, you know, dice and luck, you know, people like to talk about it as this random element that is, um, you know, something that can be very annoying, as we've talked about, or something that can uh, provide wild swings of fortune in the game. But there's also that time when, when that randomness and, and things like dice 
actually help, mm-hmm. I think, kind of thematically with a game because there are things that you absolutely cannot predict. And it sounds as though there are elements like that in these Axis and Allies games that were really intriguing. So it's not just, you know, this super light, you know, kind of festival of let's just sit around and have some fun and try and take over the world. Um, There's actually a little bit of meat on the bone there. So um, are there any other kinds of elements like that that, you know, the games have to offer that you could maybe tell us a little bit about more? Because I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, I mean, you know, short answer is, you know, all the the different versions of the game or, or different battle zones, there are something to to change it up a little bit. Okay. There's always some little nuance that they change to make it a little bit more interesting. Now, you know, for my money, I'm there to have a good time. Uh, you know, I, I like the, and this is the version you have, uh, the one that has the, the weapons development where you can sit there and blow some dice to try and get, you know, jet power, which gives your aircraft extra flying ability. You know, they can fly farther or super submarines or long range aircraft or whatever the case may be. Um, to me, I like that kind of thing, and that's in the the original base game in 1986. That's not in the new games, but uh, if you want variants, if you want ideas, uh, they're online. Let me tell you. I mean, there's a whole website dedicated to just that, and they'll go they'll go on each like accessandallies.org. Uh, will go over each game that's available, and they have all these suggestions for variants that you can do that really. Uh, not only enhance the game, but really make it so you can get a lot of play value and have fun with a fairly sim- simple system, but make it, for lack of a better word, uh, more thinky and more strategic even than the base game is. So uh, to answer your question, it's the sky's the limit as far as variability goes on that type of thing where you can have this or that happen. Um, the base game, when you're having an infantry fight an infantry, you know, the infantry defends at a two but only attacks at a one. So, you know, there, there's all sorts of stuff. You want to obviously keep those guys in reserve to help protect. You have anti-aircraft guns. And, you know, I talked about strategic bombers before. <clears throat> strategic bombing range, you can have, you know, Americans fly over Berlin with their six bombers. The guy has one aircraft carrier, but he throws as defense, excuse me, aircraft, um, anti-aircraft guns, excuse me, not aircraft carrier aircraft carrier that would be my buddy that didn't know what he was doing about aircraft carrier <laughs> he'd be lobbing yeah. an aircraft carrier <laughs> to the sky anyway <laughs> on a catapult <laughs> throw it up there pitch it a boo be like something out of Monty Python <laughs> which hey I'm sure that'd be a great variant right there but <laughs> but you know as an example to, to, to have you you think okay I've got these uh, bombers I'm America I'm gonna bomb uh, Berlin into submission well the anti-aircraft gun he gets six dice one for every bomber flying over over him and every one he throws wipes out that bomber so you could i've had this happen where i've had six fly over and only three came back and right right you know it, again that's fun is it is it i you know i took it with good good uh, good heart but uh is you know some people that may drive them nuts well i had you know six aircraft. the odds there were not in my fit you know <laughs> so it's just it is what it is so to answer your question there's lots of different and the ones that came with uh, the later editions, the the Guadalcanal, the Battle of the Bulge, uh, the D-Day, they had some variant where you talked about as far as who gets hit. Um, but generally, if you're a defender uh, and you lose troops, or if you're an attacker and you lose troops, you get to pick and choose who you lose. You're always going to lose your least expensive ones first, if at all possible, obviously. Um, but you got to still, if you're going to attack an area, you got to take it with in, at least one infantry. You can't take it with Air Force. So, you know, there are some decisions decisions there. But later games, again, uh, specifically uh, uh, D-Day and uh, 
you know, it's not Guadalc uh, Battle of the Bulge, the game kind of chooses for you. And there you have supply trucks, and they try and keep things in supply in the Battle of the Bulge, which is another rip, you know, wrinkle to make it a little bit more strategic, and you got to think you got to have the supply close enough to the troops or they can't attack, and you only have so many movements you can do. So again, it's a little bit of step above, but it's nothing too complicated to learn. So, you know, to answer your question, a lot of variants out there that you can have fun with. Um, but as far as picking and choosing troops, generally you're going to be able to pick and choose your own troops if you're, if you're losing them. Okay. All right. Um, you mentioned now a couple of times this website. So what can you tell me about the Axis and Allies kind of community? Uh, because, you know, th this sounds really interesting to me that, you know, there's people out there who are kind of putting up variants and posting different ideas for how to kind of spice up the game or add something new. Is this a very active kind of a community? Is this because it doesn't, you know, it's obviously not on BGG because it's its own website. So um, what can you tell me a little bit about the Axis and Allies community at large? Um, very large, very active. They still write articles about the various, you know, versions and they give battle reports and you can play against them online. It's, you know, you can play by uh, computer or email. Um, you know, I think uh, with the uh, growth of the internet, I mean, I think any game has a hardcore fan. I don't care if it's Bridge or Tiddlywinks or whatever. And in our hobby of board games, there's going to be a niche of anything. What's interesting about Axis and Allies, that was one of the first niches I ever saw was Axis and Allies. Um, and again, not that I, you know, lived and breathed the internet, but still, you know, when you have people posting, you know, their combat results of 50 games that they played, and here's the strategy that works best for them, and yeah, what they do is, uh, Jeff, is you get so good at this, you do what is known as a bidding structure um, to help out uh, the other side to help maybe make it a more variant game. For example, you may say you do a bidding process where if you're the Axis um, you want an extra 10 money to start with, which basically gives you, you know, three infantry or a combination of infantry and tanks. And you can put those anywhere on the map. Um, and then somebody else will go, well, I can do it with, instead of 10, I can do it with eight. And then somebody will go back and say, well, I can do it with six. And they, you know, so they have a little bidding structure because they're so good at the game. You know, this gives them a little, another little wrinkle on how to start the game. And you can put troops in a little bit different places. And maybe instead of doing uh, the standard Moscow, do Operation Sea Lion, where you're going to invade the UK or Operation, I forget what it was called, but where you're invading the United States if you're the Axis. So uh, my point is it's, it's fairly active. Um, but, you know, I think BGG is fairly active. Um, you know, I, I subscribe to postings of pictures of, of Axis and Allies Europe and uh, Axis and Allies 1941-1942. And I always get stuff in my feed where people are posting pictures about the game. A lot of people play this worldwide. Um, and, uh, you know, they make modifications. I made my own maps uh, out of wood for both Axis and Allies original game and Axis and Allies Europe. And then the 1942 version, because the maps... They came in 1942, or in my opinion, too small. So I made my own wood version. I, I posted it online on, on BGG and on the accessandallies.org uh, website. So again, there's a big community out there. I'm I'm a Neanderthal compared to those, some of those guys that have played this game. Uh, you know, I just enjoy it, but some of them take it, for lack of a better word, fairly seriously. Um, uh, <laughs> so, which is fine. <laughs> but that you know that there is a definite community to answer your question. Well, you know, a healthy community is usually a sign of a good game because, you know, a lot of the games that I can think of 
that have been around for a long time, like this uh, game, there's a very active community. You know, I, I, I poked a little fun at ASL earlier, but, you know, I know that if I have a question uh, about ASL or if I'm thinking of starting, you know, maybe trying ASL, there's going to be people out there like Chad McCash who are going to be totally willing to write to me, uh, you know, uh, give me suggestions, give me help, give me hints, and really kind of try to guide me through it because, you know, they care about the game. They, they love the game. It's something that they have, you know, an enduring kind of regard for, and they're thrilled when somebody new is coming in. And, you know, I, I find that with, uh, you know, people like Eric Brocious with the 18xx kind of crowd and Joe Huber, you know, those guys are just super friendly and super willing to you know, reach out and help bring people into that particular game, you know, that particular niche, as, as you called it, um, that they love so much. And I think that that's fabulous. And, you know, you're not going to get that over, you know, a game that is, eh, you know, you're not going to have that. I mean, I, I, I would argue with you that not every game has that kind of community because there's just some games out there that just don't really support it because the game itself just isn't good. So to me, when you look at a game like Axis and Allies and you see that kind of, you know, community, you see that it's, you know, it's almost like the Netrunner right. thing. You know, you look at the community surrounding a game like Netrunner, you know, there's just people out there who are just, you know, super excited about it, super interested in it, very active and willing to kind of share. And I think that's definitely the sign of a healthy uh, you know, game and, and a game that has some longevity. So it, it clearly sounds as though Axis and Allies has that. So um, if you, you know, I always ask everybody on the show if there's something about, you know, one of your favorite games that you could change or that you don't like, you know, what would it be? What would you change? What would you get rid of? Is there anything in Axis and Allies that you have kind of found that, you know, you wish was not part of the game or a house rule that you have implemented every single time because you think it improves the game or makes it better? <laughs> um, you know, it really depends on the audience you're playing with. Now, first of all, I already talked about the components. I mean, print your own money, use poker chips, and have an IPC tracker, uh, an industrial production unit tracker. Um, and... You know, ultimately, I'm not one to mess with games too much. Larry Harris did a, what I consider a good job. And, and uh, uh, online, you'll find, you know, if you have any frequently asked questions, they've got all sorts of things to go there. Um, you know, is it too long? I, I, you know, that's why I like my 19, uh, the, the original first version of the, the Europe, you know, Access and Allies Europe. Because to me, that's right. just the right amount of mixture of strategy. It's got the sea convoys. It's got the nice mixture of. You know, by the way, you can also take over oil fields if you're, uh, you know, the uh, Axis and take away money from UK. Nice. So, um, okay, you know, that's my favorite version. To me, that it's got destroyers, which uh, basically a destroyer eliminates the sneak sub attack um, that submarines have. So there's a little bit more uh, strategy and tactical aspect of that game because of the convoy areas and stuff like that. That's my favorite iteration of the game. Um, it, it's a small enough board. You can finish that game if you have any experience at all within two hours. It's not too long. Um, I think you know another version, the D-Day version, is, an, is a good starting point for this this genre. Um, the negative to an individual battle like Guadalcanal, Battle of Wolds, or D-Day is that's 
the one scenario. They have a little bit of variance online, but you know, you're playing that scenario. That's why maybe Fit Memoir 44 may be better for that scenario because again, you can take you know D-Day beach invasions, and then you can go to other battles and other scenarios with Memoir 44 that you really can't do with uh, Axis and Allies D-Day. Right. Um, right. So. You know, is there any complaints? Yeah, sometimes I get bad dice rolls. That's part of the game. Uh, some, <laughs> sometimes my opponents take too long to decide that they're going to buy three infantry and two tanks instead of two tanks and three infantry or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like you just said the same thing twice. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You know, I can th- see that being aggravating. Yeah, that's, that can get a little daunting. But again, that's why I keep saying the same thing. If you had the, you know, there's some games that you go into like, okay, this is going to be a brain burner. Uh, we're going to be respectful of other people, but, you know, uh, we're going to maybe call a clock on them if they take too long. You know, this is not that game. This is a game that you're going to sit there and have fun with. You know, obviously I could, you know, we could dick pick any game. I could dick pick this game. You know, uh, do I wish the, the destroyers and battleship looked a little bit differently? Or uh, would I like it if we could have on the current version that the tech advances that the weapons development that's available in the original game? Well, you know what? If I like that, I'll just pull it offline and do it. <laughs> I mean, you know, so a lot of that's things. I think the expression 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. I think there's been so many fans of this game that you can look up, hey, if you have a problem with the game, you'll find somebody that said, oh, you don't like this aspect of it? Here's what you do instead. You know, I think that's available. Right. And that's what's nice. I mean, that's, again, these games that have been around a long time, whether it's even Risk, which I don't really care for, for obvious reasons, um, you know, I think that there's enough people out there that can tell you, okay, if you don't like this or that, look at this version of the game or try this tweaking of the rules and see what you think. And I think that, that makes it work well. Well, thanks for explaining, you know, your kind of perspective and points of view on, you know, that those kind of areas of the game that might be able to be improved or, you know, things that you can do to kind of tweak it and customize it to the experience that you're looking for. So, all right, well, you know, the last thing I want to do is, you know, I've talked about Risk. You've talked about Memoir 44. Mm-hmm. Um, I, try for me, if you can, to put this game in context. You know, this game has been around for quite some time now. And it's been very successful. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. And there's still people playing it. It's still being printed today. We've talked about the community. Where would you put this game in context in the larger history or the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the grander scope of the board gaming hobby that we know mm-hmm. and love? Well, I, I think ultimately, if you don't have this game, I don't think you have Memoir 44. Because you had the dice, you have uh, the aspects of the strategic play. Um, the difference between Memoir 44 and obviously Axis and Allies is that's, you know, those are specific battles in Memoir 44, whereas Axis and Allies is much more broad scope. I think it's way ahead of risk as far as you know, goodness is the word I was going to use. That's not a word, but as far as goodness, as far as goodness <laughs> goes, Axis and Allies is a better game all around, not even up for debate, not counting the minis, not counting the historical flair. It's just a nice game. Memoir 44 is probably a little bit better game than Axis and Allies, ultimately, but it's different and and in a lot of different ways that make it both better and worse than Axis and Allies. So um, in that context, that's with it. But again, you've got so many good games out there. Um, You know, I was doing research for this show and also, you know, just for my own uh, learning ability for my son. And I played a lot of games, obviously, but 
you know, I, you know, when I was thinking about it, what games did I have fun playing with my son when he was younger? You know, Stratego. That, that's a great game. Um, you know, it's not something you're going to play when you're 45 unless you're playing against your 10-year-old son. But, you know, th- those those offer to me, those are opportunities to, okay, this is a hidden movement game, hidden, you know, agenda. It, it builds on that. You go to this and, you know, you keep building on these games and, and they're fun. They you know, tweak your mind and you don't have them in front of a computer screen, it's a win as far as I'm concerned. So uh, there's a lot of good games out there that I think you can you can fit out there. But but Access and Allies is its own little thing. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, there's a reason why it's been around so long because uh, it, I think it offers a lot without being too complicated. Um, and it, it offers some good, good, good fun for people, basically. Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing your perspective there. And, and, you know, I think even though I haven't had the chance to play it, I can clearly see what you're talking about and that, you know, this is a stepping stone kind of a game. Um, but, you know, stepping stone kind of games like this, you know, I think sometimes they get stepped on a little bit. You know, they, they say, oh, well, that's just a that's just a light, fluffy game that will lead you to the real game, you know, and, and been people kind of, that's where you get a little bit of that game snobbery. Right. So I'm kind of glad you brought up a game like Stratego because, yeah, you know, you have Stratego, you have this idea of hidden movement, hidden agendas, and, you know, that can lead you all the way up to games like Letters from Whitechapel or Mystery of the Abbey, you know, that this kind of, you know, uh, deduction games and, you know, hidden movement games and hidden traders and things like that. I mean, all of those things, I mean, you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some Sometimes I think, you know, I get caught up in it and a lot of people get caught up in it. Maybe not you, but this idea that, you know, well, all of those old games that I remember, well, those are just junky old games. You know, I would never play that again, you know, but like you said, I mean, you know, you brought up Stratego. I have a lot of fond memories of that game. You know, I played that game quite a bit. And I remember just being fascinated with trying to figure out different ways to protect my flag and then different ideas of, you know, well, geez, my brother always, you know, likes he, he, he knows I always put my flag, you know, in the back row somewhere. <laughs> right. You know, what if I put the flag in the front row? Of course. What if I surround the flag with, you know, uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, weaker troops, you know, so that it kind of throws him off the scent? You know, he's oh, here's a bunch of nine. You know, the, there's a nine there. There's an eight there. There's nothing valuable there. I'm going to I'm going to go dig in. Oh, wait, you know, there's there's the two. There's the marshal. It's like, ooh. That must I must be near the flag, you know, and I, I remember trying, you know, and, and oh, okay, uh, you know, uh, how about terrain, you know, uh, the, the the version of Stratego that I remember, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, there was like actually like a little water, right. um, you know, and it's like, oh, what if I use the terrain to my advantage? And so, you know, it kind of gets you thinking about all of these things. Which then leads you to the next right. step, you know, and the next step might be something like risk. Right. You know, that's that's kind of the next natural right. step. And then from risk, maybe to Axis and Allies right. and from Axis and Allies to Memoir 44 and on and on and on. You know, and now we're now, you know, we're, we're looking at and eagerly anticipating games like, you know, GMT's got this new one coming out uh, called Churchill. Right. You know, this is, you know, that I'm drooling over right. that. You know, this is OK. You know, we're going to play kind of, you know, the. Axis and Allies game, but we're just going to play the Allies, you right. know, and we're we're going to be these these three kind of different minds. You got Roosevelt, you got Churchill, you got Stalin, and it's like, okay, how how are they all going to work together? How are we going to make this you know happen? And so there's this kind of natural progression, but each one of them is is valuable, I think. And sometimes I think we do a little bit of disservice to older games, which is why when you ask me, hey, do you want to do an episode about Memoir Forty Four? 
which is another game I know you yeah. love. And or you know, do you want to do one about Axis and Allies? I'm like, no, let's do Axis and sure. Allies because it you know it's a game that I think really does have a place. Mm-hmm. And it continues to have a place. And so I'm glad that you were willing to come on tonight and talk to me, uh, you know, about this game and all the different varieties and and sort of flavors of Axis and Allies that are out there for people to try and sample out. So, uh, you know, I want to thank you very much for, you know, taking the time to talk with me about it Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. And again, most of these games we talk about, uh, with the exception of the Anniversary Edition and uh, the World War I Edition, are fairly uh, cost-effective or fairly affordable online even on the auction sites or uh, you know Amazon, etc. So if you're interested in one or the other, you can look them up, see the rule set, and see if it makes sense. Because they are available. It's not like you know, we're talking about the holy grail of, of a game. They're, they were mass-marketed produced, so they're available right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know that's an important thing because sometimes you know we talk about games on the show here that – you know, people are like, wow, you know, I would love to get that. And then they go to Game Surplus, right. and they're like, they don't have it. And I'm like, well, there's a reason they don't have it. It's out of print, right. you know. Uh, and maybe they can track you down a copy. Um, they're good that way. But, yeah, you know, so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are games that are, you know, available now, right now, and continue to be available. So, you know, thanks for pointing that out. And thanks also for letting us know about that website. Oh, no problem. Uh, you know, I think people who are, who are maybe interested in trying this out, and again, I mean, you know, this is the kind of game you're talking about playing it with your son and i can easily see you know when my son gets a little bit older um you know maybe only about a year or so you know maybe busting this out with him and 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 trying it out because he's about at that age too so you know this is one of those really kind of cool games i think that can bring people together from generations as well you know where you know it's it's not something that's going to be so complex that uh, a younger kid is not going to be able to play it, but it's not going to be so simple that the adult's going to be bored. Exactly. And, you know, that that's really right. valuable. Uh, you know, that's that's one of the main things that has, you know, got me thinking and considering for years now, you know, for as long as I've been doing this podcast, it's like, boy, I want to do a show about the kids' right. games that I played with my kids as they were growing up because that was huge for me. I mean, I remember the first time before I got into board gaming, um, you know, sort of in this modern era, playing games like Candyland with my oldest daughter when she was a little, little sure. one and thinking to myself, oh, my God, I want to stick a fork in my eye. <laughs> you know, like, this is the worst game ever. Or shoots and ladders. And I'm like, yes, yes, it's going to be over. And then someone hits that 99 spot or whatever the heck it is that says, oh, look, we we're going all the way down to the bottom and we get to spend another 20 minutes doing this. Yay. (laughs) And thinking to myself, okay, this is why people, and I really do firmly believe this. This is why adults don't play games with their kids because they're terrible. Yeah. Whereas if, you know, you, you play some good games and you, you actually get to have that experience. You don't mind playing with your kids. You know, this is something that is not painful for an adult and really enjoyable for a kid. And you get to spend good time together. And it sounds like you and your son have built some really good memories playing Axis and Allies. And so, you know, I think that's important. Oh, it's vital. And the thing is, you know, obviously we played other games through the years. And, you know, like Stratego, I remember one time I put my flag on the very front row right in the center and he run <laughs> I thought I was clever yeah, and he blew right past it and you know right, thought I right. had it and I, of course I had a like a number 8 or whatever hidden by two bombs in the corner he went thought that was it and he you know what's nice about any type of game and you know like Axis and Allies uh, there's lots of lessons that can be learned by games but you know with Axis and Allies you learn to deal with bad results 
And, you know, you feel for your child when he rolls, you know, all sixes when he needed to roll, you know, four or less. But the thing is that that's part of life, unfortunately. And these games, I think, teach that. I mean, we're playing a game at Kimmet and uh, with another buddy of mine. So it's my son who's 13 and another gentleman who's like in his mid-40s like I am. And my son was ahead. Nicholas was ahead. And then the rule, oh, you got to have a whole turn. Now, a lot of kids would have said, oh, what are you going to have the well, Nicholas, who's been around it long enough and has lost games to Axis and Allies through the years, he took it like a man and said, okay. So he played out the game. He ended up winning the game. But, you know, uh, we've had some bad rules in Summoner Wars, and, and he's gotten up, walked around the desk, then <laughs> sat back down. But he doesn't flip the <laughs> no, table. No, And, you know, it's, it's you know, people, you know, I remember, you know, with my daughter, we played Blue's Clues, and we played Hey, That's My Fish. I mean, there's a, you know, if, if you do some research, there are some good games out there that an adult can, for lack of a better word, tolerate. Um, in Candyland, the variation there is you use two cards instead of one. That gives the child a choice. At least it varies it a little bit. <laughs> no, nah, it's still a terrible <laughs> game, man. <laughs> anyway, that's good. That's funny. Well, you know, uh, thanks again for, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking with me about this game tonight and, and for sharing your experience and, and uh, for you know, bringing that insight about how, you know, these, these are games that can, you know, teach some lessons and, and give you some time to spend with your family, spend with your kids, like you said, away from the screen, which is always valuable, whether it's a television screen or a video game, really doesn't right. matter. Um, you know, any time that you can spend face-to-face is always good. So, uh, you know, thanks again for being on the show tonight, Damien. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks to you again for having me. I appreciate it. And now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So the first game that we're going to talk about today on a quick look here is a new game from Scott Alms. And this is Tiny Epic Defenders. Uh, this game was published in 2015. It just came out. It's published by Gameland Games, and it is for one to four players. This is the second game in the sort of uh, tiny epic um, line of games that's being put out by Gameland Games. Uh, I've already reviewed the first one, which was uh, Tiny Epic Kingdoms, uh, which was a fantastic little game. Uh, kind of uh, captured a, a bit of that 4X kind of an experience in a wonderful little box uh, with a little bit of a fantasy theme. Um, you know, uh, lots of conflict and area control and special abilities. A really nifty little game. If you haven't heard my review for that one... Uh, be sure to check back in the archives for that. Uh, this is the second in the series, and this is a cooperative game. So this is a game where, uh, according to the sort of story of the tiny epic world, um, you know, after years of kind of fighting each other, everybody has kind of realized that, you know, uh, we need to kind of like band together and work together and live together. But there are these sort of external threats that are coming from outside the kingdoms. And so everybody that used to be uh, foes is now going to work together to defend the kingdom, right? And so there's this beautiful capital city that has been built, and the surrounding countryside is under attack as uh, enemies are working their way towards it, and if you can defend the capital and keep it from falling, then you and the other players have won the game. So uh, it bears some resemblance to uh, Defenders of the Realm in that uh, way, you know, in which you have that kind of central area, the capital that is, you know, must be defended. Uh, Monarch City is what they call it in uh, Defenders of the Realm. 
realm. And then you have these kind of encroaching armies that are coming in and slowly squeezing and moving towards the center. So this game kind of uh, shares some of that. And it shares some of the natural tension uh, that's built from that kind of thing. Um, the game uses an AI that is uh, a very interesting and uh, really just very simple, streamlined, and works very well. Um, there are what are called these sort of uh, uh, faux cards. And these are cards that are going to be kind of shuffled up, and you're going to put a certain number of them uh, into this deck. It's going to be called the Horde deck. And that Horde deck is what you're going to have to be dealing with every round of the game. So you're going to start off with some basic kind of faux cards. And these are cards that are basically only going to say a terrain type. They have like some lovely illustrations, and it might say, you know, the mountains and the plains or something of that nature. And these are the terrains that are surrounding that kind of central capital. So, um, you know, you have an area that's the desert, and then an area that's the ruins, and you have the mountains, and the sea, and the plains, and so you have these different kind of landform features that represent the area around the capital city that you have to defend. Um, and so these faux cards are going to be flipped, and those are going to indicate what area is attacked. And what's going to happen is each of those little areas, those little region cards that surround a capital, have a, a wonderful little track on the top of them with this little wooden flame marker. It's a beautiful little piece. And... Uh, every time that the region is attacked, you're going to move that flame marker, right? So very, you know, nice little tie in there. It looks like, you know, the destruction as that flame marker is moving further and further along the track. Really um, simple system. And if you are there, if one of your uh, pieces is there as a player, you can defend the region. When you defend the region, you're basically going to take the hit instead of the land. Uh, this is very important because if a land ever takes too many hits, it's considered destroyed. It's been devastated stated, right? And so therefore, you're going to basically place a card face down over that land feature. And that land feature is, it's still there, but now any attacks to that land, so let's say the grasslands have been completely overrun, and you weren't able to defend them. Now, every hit that would normally apply to the grasslands is now going to go directly to the capital city. So you've kind of opened up a, a hole in the wall, as it were, of the regions that you were defending around that capital city. So this is kind of the, the way the engine works. So you have have to kind of try to defend everything, but you're not going to be able to do a very good job of it because there's going to be this constant relentless pressure of these enemies that are attacking, right? So you have the generic kind of cards which are going to represent your enemy. But then also when you build this horde deck at the beginning of the game, you also have um, more sort of specialized foes, you know. So you might have harpies or, you know, you, you might have these wraiths. And so there's these kind of named uh, creatures, okay, that are going to be added into that deck. And what's going to happen is they're going to start to appear as the game goes on because every time you get through the horde deck, you are going to take one of the cards um, uh, that is of these named specific kind of attackers, and you're going to put it into it, reshuffle, and flip through the deck again. And then you're going to put a second one in, and you're going to reshuffle. And so they're going to keep popping up. They're going to keep coming and coming and coming. And so even though you defeated the Harpies maybe once, um, you know, you only defeated some of them. You didn't defeat all of them. And so, you know, the, the, the rest of them are going to be coming for you. So you always have to kind of be prepared. But... 
the interesting thing is that the harpies are always going to come to the same region. So they're always going to come out into the mountains, say, for example. So knowing this and knowing that the deck has just been reshuffled and knowing that the harpies are going to be coming back, you might want to station someone in the mountains to repel them. So there's some planning and some sort of strategizing that you and your team can do as you start to become aware of what of these foes are going to be coming out in this deck over and over. Finally, you have kind of like the big bad boss, right? This is the last creature. This is the epic foe that you are going to have to fight if you're going to win the game. And there's like, I think, five or six of them in the game. These are things like Krakens and, you know, uh, really, you know, huge kind of creatures. Uh, giants are going to be very difficult uh, for you to be able to destroy and deal with, right? And so after you've gone through that horde deck a number of times, then we finally flip the Epic Foe card, and then you're going to have to all work together to try to defeat the Epic Foe. If you can defeat the Epic Foe before the capital city falls, you win. If you can't, you lose. And so... It's a pure co-op kind of an experience, and it's a game that is very easy to play, uh, very streamlined. I mean, you can play this game in like 15, 20 minutes with no problem. It's it's actually shorter than Tiny Epic Kingdoms by far. Um, because the engine of the game runs very smoothly. It's just really a matter of flip the cards, see where you're being attacked, make some decisions. Am I going to defend it? Am I not going to defend it? Um, some of the regions that you're in have special abilities too. So, uh, for example, the ruins give you the opportunity of taking sort of damage or threat away from other areas and transferring it to the ruins. Um, and this way, even if you're not in a region... Uh, that's being attacked, you can kind of heal some of that damage done to that land by transferring it to the ruins and then healing it from there. So there's definitely some choices to be made, but none of them are going to be particularly brain-burning. You know, there, there's nothing here that's going to grind things to a halt, um, as you so often see in some co-op games as you try to puzzle through all of the dif- uh, you know the different options that you might have. And that's a, a both a feature and perhaps a flaw of the game. And that's going to kind of lead me to kind of my general thoughts about this. So uh, here's what I think. If you put Tiny Epic uh, Defenders in front of me in Tiny Epic Kingdoms, I'm going to choose Tiny Epic Kingdoms every time. Um, maybe that's because I like the conflict, you know, kind of nature of the game. Maybe it's because I like the leading and following kind of mechanic that's, uh, um, you know, used in that game that kind of came and grew out of glory to Rome. Um, I don't really know. I think that Tiny Epic Defenders um, it seems to run a little bit more on autopilot sometimes than I would like. Um, the generic nature of the uh, enemy cards, the foe cards that come out initially, it, it doesn't lend itself to kind of that, that picture, that movie in my head, you know, about uh, this epic struggle that's happening. Um, and so, I, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of loses a little bit there. Uh, as the game progresses and those named foes come out and as that epic foe comes out, then I really start to invest more in what I'm doing. You know, I, I really get caught up in it as things kind of happen. Uh, also, I think that occurs for me because your choices ramp up. So one of the things that I haven't talked about is that there's this little deck of cards called the Artifact deck. And this can be very, very important. And Artifacts 
uh, you can gain by defeating those sort of named foes, okay? Um, the, the, the ones that will come up and be added to the deck each time you reshuffle that horde deck. And those are really nifty. They're very powerful. They're generally one-shot cards. And they're going to usually, they're designed to help you deal with the epic foe at the very end. And so without having any of those, it can be very difficult to win. With having those, it can make it a lot easier on yourself. So one of the things that's neat is if you can defeat or hold off one of those second tier foes, then your reward is you get one of these artifacts. You take a draw from the artifact deck. And so again, this leads to some interesting kind of um, decisions because if we go back to my harpy example, I know the harpy is going to be coming back to the mountains. And so therefore... I might just go out there and camp out and not worry about what else is going on in the world and wait for those harpies to come out just so that I can defend against them and gain an artifact again. And so, you know, it's kind of like it's nice of them because, you know, they come out, I beat them up, they go home, they they find something new and shiny and they bring it to me and I beat them up again. Um, so it works in terms of the game and it works in terms of there being a little bit maybe of controversy sometimes as to what I think is important versus what the other players might want me to do as I try to gain these artifacts. But again, it's very gamey to me. It's, it, it's, it's kind of gaming the system. And I think that that's the way the game was, was intended to be played. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You're supposed to be using your knowledge and experience of what's coming to help you plan for the future. So so again, a lot of people are going to look at that and say that's a feature of the game. And I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a flaw, but what I am going to say is that it seems to kind of give me a little bit of a disconnect. So, you know, you, you have these things put together, and this is why, while I enjoy Tiny Epic Defenders, and I'm glad to have it in my collection, my son enjoys it, um, I've played it with one of my daughters, and she really enjoyed it, I've taken it to the game store, and it's been a hit there, um, it is definitely a fun game. Um, I don't think it's as strong as Tiny Epic Kingdoms. And I'm really looking forward to see what Tiny Epic Galaxies, um, you know, which, which I backed, uh, what, what that's going to bring for the future. Um, but Tiny Epic Defenders does give you that cooperative experience, no doubt. Um, it's got some beautiful components to it. I love the little wooden flame tokens. I think they're fantastic. The card art for the capital city and the regions... Uh, that surround the capital city is beautiful. Absolutely love that card art. Um, the card art used for the foes and for the characters, I am really not as big of a fan of. Um, I, I don't particularly care for it, but it's certainly nothing that impacts your kind of you know value or enjoyment of the game. It's just that I, I really appreciate kind of the landscape art in the game much more so than the character art. But that's just my kind of personal preference. As a game um, system, mechanically, I think it works very well. There's really nothing wrong with any of the bits and pieces of it. It flows very quickly. It flows very nicely. It's a great filler, kind of a co-op experience. Um, I just don't know that I like it as much as I did Tiny Epic Kingdoms. You know, a Tiny Epic Kingdoms kind of wowed me in its distillation of a 4X game into a small compact package in the same way that... 
Impulse did um, by Carl Chuddock. You know, you take that 4X space genre and you distill it into this card game just amazingly. Um, this one didn't quite do that for me for the co-op genre. It didn't take a co-op game and just distill it into this amazing little box experience. It distilled it into a very good, you know, game. It, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good game. Um, but it's not something that I was as blown away by as I was by Tiny Epic Kingdom. So if you're looking for a small, um, you know, filler of a game that plays very quickly, you know, half hour or less, uh, co-op game, uh, fun little theme with some interesting choices, then Tiny Epic Defenders is definitely worth a look. So the last game that I want to talk about today is a game called Baseball Highlights 2045. This is a game by Mike Fitzgerald. Um, the publisher is Eagle Griffin Games, and this is a game that uh, I kickstarted um, after having a chance to play it with Mike uh, at ConCon last year, one of my local game conventions that I really enjoy and highly recommend to anybody who's out there uh, in the uh, um, kind of northeast region. Uh, very fun little uh, small family feeling kind of con, uh, you know, two, three hundred people, just a nice group and, and a lot of fun in Stamford, Connecticut. So that's actually coming up, I think, in uh, March or April. So uh, be on the lookout for that because it's a lot of fun. So getting back to the game here. So Baseball Highlights 2045 um, is a game that is attempting to give you a baseball feel, a baseball game, um, in a very short, reasonable time period. So we're looking at like a half hour, 45 minutes. But actually, if you don't want to play like a full series of games, you can play a single game in a space of a few minutes. So uh, the, it's really designed to do series of games. And there's a few reasons for that, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the game is incredibly fast, very easy to play, very easy to learn. So here's the thing. The theme of the game is that we are in the year 2045, and after the whole steroids era in baseball, um, people kind of decided, you know what, we, we should just kind of just give up, you know, on trying to control what people and athletes are going to do to gain a competitive advantage. So why don't we start allowing people to cybernetically improve themselves? So you end up with pitchers with cybernetic implants and, um, you know, uh, all sorts of different kind of modifications to the human body. So now you have, you know, human players, which are called naturals, and now you have cyborgs. And the cyborgs got so good and so dominant as pitchers that nobody could, like, hit them because, you know, they're throwing the ball at, you know, 150 miles an hour and more, and, you know, uh, a human eye just can't track the ball quickly enough. And so they develop robots. Uh, and the robots Robots are, are kind of designed to counter the cyborgs, and they're just purely hitting machines. Um, they, they can't move very fast. Um, they're kind of like, you know, shown as these nice little kind of uh, bat machines on little treads, almost like little tanks that are going to be kind of rumbling around the bases, right? And so the robots have been developed, and yet there's still a place for humans because nobody can field as well as a human. No one can catch a ball and track it as well as a human. And so there, there's this kind of interesting imagined future of baseball and what it might look like 
in the year 2045. And quite frankly, I thought it sounded fairly dumb. (laughs) I really didn't like the idea. I mean, I was kind of like, you know, I hate steroids in baseball. I, you know, when I think baseball, I try to think of like, you know, my, my mind goes back to like the movie, The Natural, you know, it's like that whole era of baseball and just, just kind of the purity of the game and um, what the game represents culturally for us here in the United States. And uh, I really didn't want to imagine this future where we kind of give up on principle and just allow anything to go. And I was like, eh, I, this isn't for me. Well, then I played the game uh, because I know Mike Fitzgerald and uh, he's a super guy. And uh, he was at ConCon and he was demoing the game with Ralph Anderson of Eagle Griffin. And, uh, you know, they were demoing the game the whole con. And I had a chance to play it and, you know, hear Mike explain it and, and go through it and play it with him. And I was instantly hooked because the game, regardless of whether or not you want to buy into the futuristic theme, just try to set all that aside. If you have a problem with that like I do, try to set that aside because what you have is you have a game that's more about managing a team and building a team than it is about playing the game of baseball, which doesn't sound like a good thing, but it really is. So what Mike's done here is he's distilled a game down to six innings, and he has given you a a team, a limit of 15 cards in your deck that represents your team. And at the start of every round, you're going to be drawing six of those cards, and that's going to be your hand. You're going to play one card for each inning, and you're going to alternate back and forth between the visitor and the home team, and you're going to find out who wins the game. Uh, You also have the opportunity to put a, a hitter kind of like on deck as your pinch hitter. And there's going to be the opportunity for that kind of surprise move during the game, a little bit of strategy or perhaps a bluff. And then there's also the opportunity to put in defensive cards. So if I'm like the visiting team, I may want to put in a a powerful defensive card uh, to try to stop the home team from perhaps trying to pull out a a late inning win, you know, a bottom of the six in this case, instead of bottom of the ninth inning win. And the basic mechanics of the game are quite simple. I'm going to put down a card. And there's uh, an area on the card which lists immediate effects. So that immediate effect could be something like a leadoff single, or the immediate effect could be non-existent, or the immediate effect could be glove, cancel one hit, or something like that. And then underneath it, it's going to tell you the hits that I'm threatening. So I might be threatening a triple, or I might be threatening two singles, or I could be threatening a home run. So I'm going to play my card. And I'm going to apply any immediate effects that actually would impact the game. And then I'm going to put base runners on my lovely little player mat that shows a baseball diamond and has areas for you to put the cards and keep track of score in the game's one. Really nicely done. And I'm going to put my base runners on home plate because they're threatening runs. They're, they're, you know, these are hits that could potentially happen. What I mean by that is then my opponent has a chance to play a card from their hand. And so perhaps they might play that card that says glove cancel one hit. So the card that I played that was threatening two singles, now I have to remove one of those. And now I only have one single. And now that he has had a chance to play his card and apply the immediate effect, I now get to take my one remaining single. So I move my base runner to first base. Meanwhile, his card that had the the instruction that canceled one of my hits says he's threatening a triple with a fast runner. And this is one of the other really neat parts of the game. 
is that every card not only is talking about abilities and not only talking about um, the threatened number of hits, but there's also three different speeds of runners. And the different speeds of runners are going to come into effect in the game in many different ways. For example, if I have a slow runner on second base and I get another single, okay, and my, my opponent, she's not able to stop that, then what that means is my slow runner on second base is going to move to third base. However, if I have an average runner on second base, an average runner will actually score from second base, okay? So they're going to be able to actually bypass second and go straight to home and score me a run. However, an average runner on first base will only go to second base. So their special kind of ability only kicks in when they're in scoring position, right? So an average runner will score from second. A slow runner won't. And then you have what are called your fast runners. Your fast runners always go one more base than the actual hit. So a single turns into a double, a double turns into a triple, etc. with a fast runner. So very quickly through this very simple back and forth card play, you're going to be threatening runs, having things happen, not even so much threatening runs, but threatening hits, and then your opponent has a chance to modify that. Meanwhile, they might be threatening their own hits, and so you get into this actual ebb and flow that feels a lot like baseball. So that was one of the things that immediately I, I was just totally struck by because I was like, it, it doesn't sound like it should work. It sounds very clunky, but it's actually very, very um, fluid. And so it creates this wonderful feeling of baseball um, through the use of very simple card play. In addition, each of the cards that you play is either going to be a natural, which is, you know, a regular human, a cyborg, right, which is an altered human, or a robot. And so some of the cards that you play are going to be specifically targeting cyborgs or naturals or robots. So your cyborg uh, pitcher might cancel all hits versus a natural. Or you could have a you know robot hitter um, that is going to get what's called a clutch single versus a natural pitcher or something of that nature, right? And so there's all of these different ways in which the cards can interact, and it's a beautiful thing, right? So you have your team, you play a game. When you're done, you're going to pick up the cards that you use to play, and every single one of those cards has a little monetary value on it. And this is the really fun part of the game, at least in my opinion. Because then what you get to do is add up your total of money. And then there's a deck of free agent cards that are going to be arrayed between the players. Six cards are going to be flipped up that you have to choose from. And so you're going to be able to take turns basically buying free agents that are going to go on top of your draw stack. Unlike a lot of deck builders, they're going to go you know, into your discard pile. No, 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 no. These guys go right on top of your deck. So you have a little bit of foreknowledge. If I buy first, my opponent saw what I bought. And maybe now they're going to actually pick up a player that they think is going to counter the one that I just did. So now you get that mine versus mine thing, which is really awesome. So you get your players, you draft them, you put them on top of your draw deck. Now you think, oh, this is going to lead to bloat after a while. No, because every single player that you draft, you have to take one of the players that was in your hand that you just played with, and you're going to send some players down to the minors. So if I draft one new guy, I'm going to send one of the cards that I played in the last game, and I'm going to tuck it under my mat, and that player is now down in the minors. 
If I get two cards, I got to send two to the miners. You will never have more than 15 cards in your deck. And so after you play a, a series of these little mini games, you're going to end up with a vastly different team than you started with. Or you're going to end up with a team that kind of augments the sort of abilities and talents of your original team. Really, what you want to do is totally dependent on what you decide and the flop of cards in the free agent deck. And so quickly, the game becomes a really interesting deck building game because you're going to be custom crafting your team. You might be going for a team that's heavily uh, you know, slanted towards offense. You know, every card you get threatens multiple runs. But, you know, if you do that, you're not going to have very many defensive cards. So you better hope that your offense is going to power you to victory because you're not going to be able to stop anybody either. Um, by the same token, you could go for a heavily uh, defensive kind of team, which is going to, you know, really stymie your opponent and frustrate them while you eke out one or two little runs that win you the game. And of course, there's everything in between there. So, all of this leads to this really rich, kind of wonderful feeling of not only playing baseball, but running a team and building a team, you know, and uh, living uh, uh, not too far from Philadelphia, where we're in the process of rebuilding our uh, basketball team and our baseball team. Uh, there's a lot of this that kind of resonates with me. You know, it's like this idea of I'm building for the future. And then, you know, you're, you're going to see the, the benefits and, and what happens as those new players enter your team and come to fruition. But you're going to have to also deal with the fact that your opponent has watched you do that and is trying to build a team that's going to be able to uh, compete with yours or counter yours. And so there's a lot of really interesting things that happen in this little game. So, uh, you know, I, I could go on and on about it. I could, you know, there's four different starting teams. There's tons of free agents. Um, the components for the game are lovely. The card art is wonderful. It's like throwback card art. It looks like it's from like the 1920s and 30s. Uh, but you're seeing pictures of cyborgs and robots, right? But they're kind of like almost steampunk kind of robots, which is really kind of nifty. You just have the wonderful kind of uh, selection of free agents, and they're all named after historical baseball players, but they're like mixed up, right? So one of my favorite cards is this ridiculous, just beefy looking dude, like just all out of proportion, and that's the Barry Sosa card. So, you know, I kind of find that kind of funny in a sad kind of a way, but you know, it's all in there. And so the theme really comes out. Uh, the feeling of playing baseball comes out. The, the feeling of managing a team comes out. This is just a wonderful baseball experience. Uh, even though I thought the theme was kind of goofy at first, once I started playing it, I loved the game so much, it didn't even matter to me. And it actually helped me buy into the game and the mechanics of the game actually make more sense with the theme. So I, I really can't say enough about this. I really enjoy this. I'm glad I kickstarted it. Um, you know, Mike Fitzgerald has got two huge winners on his hands as far as I'm concerned between diamonds and this uh you know right now the guy's batting a thousand pun intended so that's my review for baseball highlights 2045 well that's about all the time we have for this episode of the long view I want to thank Damian Perry for being my special guest today, uh, talking about Axis and Allies. Thank you very much for your time, Damian, and uh, hope to have you on the show again soon. I, of course, want to thank the Dice Tower. The Longview is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all they have to offer for gamers at Dicetower.com. 
I, of course, want to thank my sponsor, GameSurplus.com, home of great games at great prices with phenomenal customer service and shipping speed. No matter what you're looking for, GameSurplus can find it for you. So go check them out. And, of course, I want to send a special shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Conveniently located right off of Interstate 80 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, it's a fantastic and growing resource for gamers. So if you're in the area, stop on by and check them out. That's The Gamer's Edge. So for Damien and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening, and have a great night.